0: chapter 36 of from mud to mufti by bruce barne's father this recording is in the public domain chapter 36 start for america held up a devious course new york liberty loan speech making go sick start for home it has been a wonderful war this full of surprises for everyone and i somehow think the germans have been more surprised than anybody but way down amongst the ordinary small mortals who form the component parts of this monstrous catastrophe, I doubt whether any one has been cast for a more varied or unexpected role than myself. It's an ell of a time way back to nineteen fourteen, as old Bill would say, and when I fastidiously but firmly stepped into that historical Flanders mud. I little thought that ere my part was done in this conflict I should number a visit to the United States of America amongst my other wanderings. And yet, here I am, pinning these lines on a troopship crossing the Atlantic on my return from America. Pinning these lines, by the way, consists in searching for the paper with an oscillating fountain pen and occasionally stabbing it down to the bed, then waiting till the next wave comes. On a troopship in mid-Atlantic, That's where I start to write the eleventh and last voyage of Sinbad the Sailor, as it were. But it is in England where this last yarn begins. When the startling and bewildering news that I was to go to the United States was squirted at me by the powers that be, I was in London, recently returned from the American Front, in France. Whilst with the Americans I had frequently wished that some time or other I could go to the country they came from, to my mind one's judgment of an army is quite incomplete unless one knows what sort of a thing is behind that army what sort of a feeling those behind have for those they have sent to war and what those behind are doing saying and thinking i little thought that this vague wish of mine would be so soon realized anyway events developed one night i received my orders and two days later off i started now in these days of strife going to america is as every one knows a complicated and secretive sort of business there is scarcely any doubt that the germans do not like us in fact they have gone still further and what's more have been very nasty about this sailing to and from america i shall therefore in accordance with what is best for all concerned refrain from mentioning where i sailed from the name of the ship i travelled in and any other details which I feel might cause jubilation, information, or gratification in Cookshaven, Berlin, or elsewhere, I left London, swathed in the garments which we have all grown to associate with captains in the British Army, with three boxes complete with labels, after a frantic and exhausting rush to a certain seaport in order to catch the boat which threatened to leave hourly. I then languished for a week in an hotel as the sailing was cancelled on arrival. This, of course, was part of some cunning nautical plan, but I also learnt from sundry philosophers of the neighbourhood that there was some trouble about coal. Either there was no coal, or too much coal, or nobody to poke the fire, or something, I don't quite know what. I'm no sailor. But anyway, some bother about coal had something to do with the delay the days of ships driven by means of twisted elastic being now quite past we all had to wait for this coal crisis to right itself hence that week in the hotel i hate hotels as i have said before i am unmanned by a hotel vast palm courts and marble dining halls depress me this hotel was one of those gigantic new structures which several revolving front doors and an array of haughty females safe behind mahogany counters who book you a room if there is one time dragged along slowly in this gilded and stupendous edifice i discovered a turkish and swimming bath somewhere down below in a labyrinth of halls and passages and spent most of my time down there at last after several false alarms i finally got notice of the day and time i was ordered to embark it's extraordinary in hotels how news of your departure leaks out and what a lot of interest it evokes strangers in field marshals uniforms enter your room with a skeleton key and offer to remove your luggage order you a taxi or take your clothes away to be brushed the whole staff of housemaids who have your room in hand from one anemic looking wench to about six monarchs of physical culture all visit your room two lift boys take you down and in the hall your boxes are struggled for by a platoon of swarthy foreigners in red jackets like goldfish after crumbs Then finally on both sides of the rotating doors you encounter an array of giants in costumes of blue with gold braid which would put to shame the diplomatic uniform of even the smallest Balkan state. You want to set aside about five pounds for this side of hotel life. I drove off down to the docks and was not long in getting on board. What dread words those are for me, getting on board. There can never have been a worse mariner than I if i catch sight of the funnels of a ship from the hotel windows a mile away i feel ill and as for the final walk up the gangway i am from that moment onwards a strange and unearthly being there is something about the whole construction and personality of a ship that adversely permeates my whole system i have endured several thousand miles on various oceans and never have i got any better that peculiar smell which hits you as soon as you get on a ship that compound of paint, oil, and stuffiness is worse than a gas attack to me. Well, anyway, I drove off down to the docks on this occasion and courageously went on board. It was a big ship, the larger the better for my purposes, and was about the twenty-five thousand tons sort of thing. Two days were now spent slowly and laboriously extricating ourselves from the aftermath of the aforementioned coal crisis and the complications of the local docks. Then we pushed off. The Teuton, in his agony of thwarted hate, had certainly succeeded in making the transatlantic passage peculiar if nothing else. The submarine was conquered, but considerable strange mannerisms were still retained. The most objectionable one, to my mind, was the fact that a voyage lasted twice as long as normally. This left me with the incessant worry as to whether we can ever reach the other side before it becomes very rough indeed. I live from hour to hour on a ship. I can strut truculently about the deck if the sea is as flat as a looking-glass, and can fight that nauseating gust which comes at you up a ventilator. But if at all rough, I am down and out in a second. I am thinking of leaving a large sum of money to establish a fund for promoting kindness to passengers among stewards. Oh, the anguish of a voyage sometimes. This voyage of which I write was fortunately a smooth one. This was lucky as it lasted twice as long as it usually did. After an eccentric and mysterious passage, we at last knew that in a few hours we would come within sight of New York. Everything from now onwards seemed to go rapidly. I stood on the front of the ship by some railings. I don't know what the part is called, but it is towards the sharp end of the boat watching for the very first vision of new york at last the mammoth woolworth building reared its head dim and pale yellow over a confused mass of other buildings lost in morning haze the voyage was over in a few hours we had passed up the hudson and were safely secured in a dock an hour or two more and we had emerged from the suspicious and curt scrutiny of the customs officials and were most of us waiting for scarce taxis surrounded with luggage and coloured porters new york new york in wartime, that's what i was to see i was very familiar with the three other large capitals at war london paris and rome and now here was the headquarters of the newest additional nation to the determined company of kaiser crushers i drove along in a taxi gorging on all the new sights After a life spent mostly amongst two- and four-story buildings, I confess the Woolworth building strikes one more like a nightmare than anything else. It's a bit dwarfed in New York, owing to the fact that there are so many other buildings which have run to seed. An ordinary three- or four-storied house in New York would probably get run over by a tram or something. People's attention is centered much higher. In the distance, the effect of these monstrous buildings is peculiar. They are also geometrically uninteresting, giant cubes or triangles or parallelograms. One of these habitations near my hotel was of the shape of a safety razor blade on its end, enlarged millions of times, a giant wedge, as it were. My hotel was on Broadway, a mighty cube, entrance as usual by means of rotating glass doors. My rooms in the hotel luckily looked out on Broadway, and as Broadway crosses 7th Avenue just in front of the Hotel Astor, the view is more varied still. The chaotic whirlpool in front of the Hotel Astor is known as Times Square. Well, here I was at last, fixed up in New York in the Hotel Astor. Now, before going on further with this narrative, I must first explain a few little points which may not have occurred to the reader and which, if they did, he might set down his egoism or swelled head or self-advertisement on my part. But in order to give a clear and concise picture of my time in America, it is necessary for me to tell you exactly how things went for me. He of the domed head and starched wide collar, Shakespeare to wit, once said, What's in a name? And now I know he was joking. A name can nearly kill you. That's my experience. The news of my going to America had preceded me. I smelt a rat when I was asked to sign a volume of fragments from France on coming down the gangway from the ship. But after a few hours at the Hotel Astor, any hope that I had ever entertained of being in America quietly was completely dispelled. The first signs of the riot which was to come took the shape of the telephone ringing incessantly. Later on, I used to spring up with a start when the telephone stopped. The silence jarred on me so then came the interviews for several days i told a sequence of pleasant but perfect strangers what i thought of new york what i thought of the war and what i thought of the american soldiers in the field in france occasionally this would vary with how i came to think of old bill and what places and battles i had been to all these interviewers were very pleasant and clever people On reading the torrent of articles which followed in the papers afterwards, I was amazed at what practice can do for them in the taking of interviews. One man, I remember, to whom I talked solidly for nearly three-quarters of an hour, took no notes down whatever, but he had bottled all I had said and got most of it right, too. As I sat in that room at the Astor giving word-pictures of my travels and adventures, I couldn't help thinking much of those dim, distant days when first I slushed around on those bleak Flanders fields, and of my first meeting with old Bill. A big jump, the trenches at Messines to the Astor, New York, but war is full of surprises. My visit exactly coincided with the stupendous and all-absorbing movement the raising of the fourth liberty loan. I have seen war loans in various forms raised from time to time in England. I have seen our methods of doing so. I have read advertisements which pointed out in clear dictatorial terms the small-minded stupidity of anyone who failed to be enticed by four and a half percent. I have seen all our English methods at work, but for real prodigious enthusiastic effort New York during the loan drive beat everything I've ever seen. Soon after I arrived I had reason to be shot around the city in a car, and, incidentally, passed down Fifth Avenue. My first impression was that the war was over. From one end to the other on both sides of the street and festooned down the middle hung every flag of every size and description. A vast canopy of colored cloth and kaleidoscopic profusion seemed to block out the sky, and the walls of the cube-like monstrous buildings on either side of the avenue. Here and there, through the chinks of this mammoth Joseph's coat, minor activities were rioting with each other for predominance. Here, perhaps, you might see a patriot standing on a platform in front of a picture depicting the entry of Honduras into the war, who, by means of dramatic gestures and unintelligible words, was holding the attention of a cosmopolitan, swaying crowd, the rear ranks of which ran the risk of heavy casualties from the passing crush of taxis, lorries, decorated fire-engines and private cars. There again you might see four frantic and sexless-looking women framed in an avalanche of flags candidly advertising the size of their mouths as they brandished liberty-bond forms in the air and shouted exhortations which nobody listened to. A few yards further on you ran into a procession. No amount of inquiry could tell you what procession. You just had to use your judgment and experience, picked up by travel, to find out what procession it was. For instance, if you suddenly came upon a crashing band of cymbals, and over the sea of cars and people caught sight of a couple of hundred Mongolian faces wearing top-hats with the stars and stripes round wound them, you might safely conclude that this was Siam, Java, or Juan Fernandez showing unmistakably that she too was in favor of raising the loan. Whilst a decorated furniture wagon or fire engine with the words, Juan Fernandez has sent more than half a platoon to the western front, inscribed thereon, would evoke frenzied applause and show clearly that juan fernandez approved of the united states and that there was no chance of rupture for years to come fifth avenue at lone time is really a mighty sight i knew that even when peace was declared london would be unable or shall i say unwilling to equal it i saw these wondrous and enthusiastic sights soon after my arrival just before all the papers had really got going with cartoonist Barnes' father says or bern's father praises us soldiers etc but i was soon to be drawn into the liberty loan whirlpool everybody had something to do with it everywhere all effort was directed towards the big aim in view 6 billion dollars and very soon the big clutching hand said i see by the papers that there dwelleth in an upper chamber at the hotel called astor a cartoonist by name bern's father he must forthwith be extracted and used in our enterprise in two days time letters telephone messages and callers arriving in massed formation left me no further doubt as to my future in new york out of the usual average of about twenty applications a day i selected one or two meetings at which i would speak and determined i would do my best such as it was in the cause of the liberty loan i would rather have a day in the trenches than make a speech once i get up on the platform or whatever it is i feel better but in that ten minutes before i go on i tremble like a blanc mange in an east wind all the little things which i have previously decided to say and which i have repeated to the bedroom looking-glass with enormous success are of course completely forgotten instead some lukewarm phrases are exuded through trembling lips and chattering teeth and finally by some miraculous piece of luck i squirt out a lucky pithy and perhaps pertinent or humorous remark which saves me from a catastrophe Then sit down in a bath of perspiration i made speeches in various parts of new york and the country round sometimes at theatres sometimes on a platform in a hall once on a platform at a railway station and once in a church besides these horrible activities i held forth at innumerable dinners the after-dinner speaking is the easiest brown as you have nearly always got your hearers in a comatose state before you begin I made one speech at a dinner where nothing but ice water was provided. I found it harder to get it over, as they say on the stage. I like an audience that has been built up on a good foundation of cocktails, table d'hote, good wine, and cigars. And now, whilst all this rattle and bang was going on in New York and America generally, came the creaking and cracking of the war. The papers daily recorded signs and portents that all was not well with the Germans and their allies. Bulgaria had left the caste, then Turkey, then Austria. The excitement in America was intense. On all sides people felt that our turn had come at last. The Germans, deserted by their dupes, were at last ring round by the ever-increasing power of the Allies. The weight of America at the right moment was turning the scales. I read the papers with great eagerness. I searched every line for any indication of the end. The end of the war. It hardly seemed possible that such a thing was near. The American public, I could see, couldn't fully grasp what a long business it had meant for us. The four years which Britain and France had endured were, for them, difficult to realize. Whilst in New York I got ill, a serious trouble broke out in my left ear and rapidly reduced me to a very low level of cheerfulness and vigor. Specialists told me that it was due to my being in a very low state of health and excessive nerve strain. I felt very bad indeed. An acute attack of melancholia, coupled with an incessant pain from an abscess behind the drum of my ear, obliged me to cancel any further engagements. Never in my life have I felt quite so ill as I was then. I went to the British Consulate and explained the whole situation. They quite understood, and on the advice of a specialist I decided that further work out there was useless. I was really on my way across America to Australia but I knew inwardly that my number was up on this trip. I was very ill, and I realized it. People that are about me when I get ill rarely take in how bad I'm feeling, as I unfortunately instinctively camouflage myself over with a film of jocularity. However, some very friendly British officers understood and did everything possible to arrange for my passage home. I went back to the hotel again, and until the boat left, made the best of it. I lay on my bed most of the time, occasionally pulling myself together to go downstairs for a meal. I think the accumulated strain of the past four years had at last got me, and that I now for a space had to put up with a nervous breakdown, and the side-lines that go with it. I caught a cunard boat and started on the return voyage to England. For four consecutive days and nights I lay asleep in my cabin. I was completely exhausted after that i began to set up and take notice as they say of babies in two days more i pulled myself together sufficiently to draw a picture which i am glad to say brought a hundred pounds for the seamen's orphanage it was auctioned at a gaff on the ship they were a jolly crowd on that boat it was a troop-ship packed to the lid with american soldiers bound for france a large crowded convoy steadily plodded over its zigzag course on its way to england Meanwhile, the Marconi daily news was filling the hearts of those on board with the hopes of the successful termination of the war. End of chapter thirty six. Recording by Philip Gould.